You are listening to audio recorded at the Village Church. For more information, go to villagechurchbaltimore.com. At this time, I'd like to invite Jay up, and Jay will be reading today's scripture passage. Good morning, Village. First Corinthians 1 through 17. 1 1 through 17. Paul called by the will of God to be an apostle, apostle of Christ Jesus and our brother Sosthenes to the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and in all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will sustain you to the end guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says... I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Zephus, or I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you were baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanus. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thanks for the sign. Thank you for our church. Thank you for your word. And thank you for Jesus who has made all of this possible. I pray that you'd open up our hearts and our minds today as we explore your word and come to grips with this principle that you want a united church. And I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Awesome. If I haven't met you yet, my name is Larry, and I'm one of the pastors here at the Village Church. Today, we are starting a new sermon series. We are going through the book of 1 Corinthians Um, It's uh, pretty long, and so we're going to be spending several months going through this book. At our church, we believe that we want to root all of our sermons in Scripture. Um, And so sometimes what that looks like is we highlight, we recognize there are these themes going on in our church, and we want to identify passages in Scripture that uh, speak to those themes And sometimes what we do, what that looks like, is we actually identify a book of the Bible, like 1 Corinthians right now, and we are going to be preaching systematically through that book. So that's what we're going to be doing. We'll be talking about 1 Corinthians, and uh, today is the first week we're talking about 1 Corinthians 1, 1 through 17. 
First, I want to provide a little bit of context. Uh, Corinth was a major port city in the Roman Empire, and I have a picture up here of the ruins of ancient Corinth. It's located in modern-day Greece, and it was known for its wealth and immorality. In fact, the city was so immoral, there was this phrase thrown around in the day, which was to be like a Corinthian, which literally meant to practice fornication. That's what it meant. So at the time, so you know how people today, we might say something like, well, when we think of cities like Las Vegas or Hollywood, certain connotations come to mind. And back then, when you use the word Corinth, certain connotations came to mind because it was a very immoral city. But God loves all people, so God wanted to reach the people of Corinth as well. And so he sent people like Paul to go to Corinth. In Acts 18, this records Paul visiting the city of Corinth and records him spending about a year and a half there trying to start a church. And people were saved and the church was started. Later he moved on to other churches uh, in other cities to try to start more churches. Um, And a few years later, he wrote this letter. So this church is a few years old, and, um, and the reason why he writes this letter, there's probably two reasons. Firstly, there's evidence that Paul had heard of reports of disunity, of quarreling, of immoral behavior. We, some of that was referenced in the passage just read. And so he wants to address this issue. He had heard there was disunity, and so he wanted to address this issue. He wanted to encourage them to be united. Secondly, the church at Corinth had asked Paul for clarification on several matters. Um, Several times throughout the book, in particular from 1 Corinthians 7 and onwards, um, there's this phrase, now concerning these matters that you wrote, now concerning this and concerning this. And so it seems like the church in Corinth, they had asked Paul to clarify a few things. So that's the second reason he wanted to clarify a few questions that were asked of him. And it's interesting, throughout the whole book, Paul is constantly appealing to the unity of the church. And throughout the, in the beginning of the church, in order to address this issue of quarreling and division, and also towards the end, in order to address these questions, he's often appealing be, to this principle of be unified. That seems to be a central theme throughout this book. And so over the next several weeks, we'll be talking about this central theme of we are to be a united church, and it applies to today as well. The principle of the Corinthian church being a united church, that is something we need to live out today. So let's dive into today's passage. Um, in the first few verses, Paul gives a standard greeting. He introduces himself, names his audience, the church of Corinth. And then in verse 4, he thanks God for what he calls, quote, the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus. He thanks God for this grace, and he characterizes this grace in a variety of ways. In verse 5, he, he says that this grace uh, involves speech and knowledge, all speech and all knowledge. In verse 7, he says that we that the Church of Corinth, they're not lacking in any gift. In verse 8, he says that they have this uh, sustenance or this perseverance to the end. They have guiltlessness on the day of Jesus Christ. And in verse 9, it says that they have fellowship of Jesus. They are invited into the fellowship of the Son. And so all of these are sort of like qualifiers or characteristics of this grace of God that Paul is talking about. In a short way to summarize this whole thing is the gospel. And so Paul, even though he's recognizing, okay, Here's this divided church. I'm going to talk to this divided church. What he does is he sets the foundation from the beginning. And he says, first and foremost, you should all remember, and I'm going to be thankful for this because I need to remind, this, remind myself of this, that you all have the grace of God. You all have the gospel. And that is the one thing that unites you all. The gospel, which means good news, is the message that no matter who you are, no matter what your background is, 
that even though you have been separated from God because of your sin, Jesus loves you. And he loved you to the point of death so that you can be restored into right relationship with God once again. And so Paul is reminding them of this gospel. And he's saying, if you receive and believe this gospel, all of these things that he talks about will be true of you. You will be enriched in all knowledge. You won't be lacking in any spiritual gift. You will be sustained to the end. You will persevere. You will be guiltless on the final day. And you will have fellowship with Jesus. And and so all of these things are true of those who have the gospel. And so he's reminding the church, okay, before I get to the nitty-gritty stuff about how you're divided and quarreling stuff, I want to remind you that you are all united under this gospel. So Paul gives this greeting, okay, and then he thanks God for the fact that his hearers all know the gospel. And then... He gets into the nitty-gritty stuff, starting from verse 10. He gives them a command. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree, and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind, in the same judgment. So he's commanding them, be united, don't be divided, be of the same mind, the same judgment. And so let's keep going. Verse 11. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers, What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And so what has happened is, so Paul went through and he taught some things in the church, in in the city of Corinth. And then a few other people came through, people like Apollos and Cephas, who's a, Cephas is aka Peter. And people had sort of been choosing who to follow, who to align with. And one guy would say something like, oh, Paul said this, but Apollos said this. So Paul must be right and Apollos must be wrong. And someone else would say, no, Cephas is right, or, or Apollos is right, but Cephas is wrong, and so vice versa. People are always they're choosing who to follow, and on and on. And it can be easy for us today, we might look at something like that, and we might say, man, guys, get this together. You know, you're all preaching the same gospel. You know, we're all on the same team. However, this reality, this phenomenon of Choosing someone to follow at the expense of someone else to follow and creating division, that's not just a church in Corinth thing. That's a universal church thing. That, you can say, church tradition of quarreling with one another, of picking sides, choosing sides, identifying certain leaders to follow and condemning other leaders, that has, been, that has existed throughout church history and even to today. What I'm talking about is this mentality of drawing boundaries, this mentality of drawing boundaries. And it's not just a Christian thing. Um, Everybody does it. And I'm not talking about good boundaries. Sometimes it's healthy to have good boundaries. Um, But what I'm talking about is this tendency in humanity to to look at yourself and you say, oh, I'm this type of person, okay? And I like who I am. I'm this type of person. And so what I'm going to do is I'm going to draw a boundary. And I'm going to say, if you're not like this type of person who I am, then somehow you're lesser than. Somehow I'm better than you. Somehow I'm more superior than you. So that is a human tendency that we all have. And um, here's some examples. Hey, sometimes people say stuff like, if you do this, then you're a good person. Or if you do that, then you're a bad person. Sometimes people say, if you have this amount of money, then you're a good person. Then you're on this side of the boundary. If you have that amount of money, then you're a bad person. You're, you have, you're on that side of the boundary. Sometimes people say this, if you have this skin color, or if you have this ethnic background, then you're a good person. You're on this side of the boundary. Or if you have that kind of skin color, that kind of ethnic, boundary, ethnic background, then you have that sort of, then you're a bad person, and you're on that side of the boundary. 
Let's say you have this sort of family background, then you're a good person. If you have that kind of family background, you're a bad person. If you have this kind of social or educational attainment, then you're a good person. If you don't have that sort of attainment, then you're a bad person. Or if you align with this political party, then you're a good person. You're on this side of the tracks. If you don't align with this political party, if you align with that political party, then you're on that side of the tracks. You're not a good person. And so everybody has this sort of way of thinking. They've identified what the good qualities are, what the good characteristics are. And they say, if you don't have these qualities or characteristics, then you're on the other side. You're on the other side of the boundary. Whatever vocabulary you want to use, this describes the whole world. Everybody does this. For all of history, people have been drawing boundaries, isolating people from one another, segregating people from one another, prompting people to go to war sometimes against one another. However, it's not just the world. It's in the church as well. The church also has a history of drawing boundaries. I'm going to open up several cans of worms. Okay, we're going to have a worm party with all these cans of worms. First off, I want to talk about theological boundaries. Theological boundaries. Back in Paul's day, people would say stuff like, I follow Paul, I follow Paulus, and things like that. And essentially, what they were doing was they would be labeling themselves by dividing up into theological tribes, theological camps. They would say, Apollos is teaching this thing, so I'm going to follow that. Or Paul is teaching this thing, so I'm going to follow that. And today, I would say, many Christians do the same thing. Many Christians do the same thing. I'm not going to name specific people, but this is what people do. Okay? They identify some pastor, some celebrity pastor, some Christian leader they respect and they read and they listen to the sermons. And this guy is legit. This guy is solid. That's a term people use. This guy is solid. And then what they do is they, they judge other Christians' maturity. They, they judge other Christians' well-being based off of how well that person aligns with their celebrity pastor. Maybe you've seen that, maybe you haven't, but that's something people do. They, they identify a celebrity pastor and they say, okay, here's Joe Schmo. Okay, I'm going to ask him a few questions to try to figure out what he believes about this issue and this issue and this issue. And they say, oh, this guy, either he's solid too or he's way off course. Man, this guy, he needs to get himself into a solid church or something because he's doing it all wrong. And so that's what we do. And sometimes we, we don't, it's not just about pastors. Sometimes we, we or not about people. We t- sometimes we talk about whole churches. Okay, we, we have labels on whole churches. Maybe it's the denominational label, or maybe it's, we say stuff like, oh, that's a seeker-friendly church, and you can fill in the blank. Maybe that's a good thing or a bad thing. Or maybe that's a reformed church, and maybe you can fill in the blank. That can be a good thing or a bad thing. Or sometimes people say that's an expository preaching church, or that is a social justice-minded church. So we have all these labels, and maybe you hear these terms and you have no idea what I'm talking about, and if that's you... You're doing awesome. Don't worry about it, okay? Don't think about those things. You're in better shoes, and you just stay out of the mess. Just stay out of the mess, okay? You're better off that way. But what people do is, okay, they identify churches with these labels, and then they say, this is, because they have this label, they're either a solid church or stay away from that church. They're going to hell. They're a cult or something. Of course, it's not necessarily wrong to label churches. It's not wrong necessarily to label churches. It's um, you know, sometimes you want, it's like a way to summarize a lot of things about a church. But what is wrong, what is unhealthy, is we use these code words, and without giving a second thought, we use these code words on people or on churches, and we immediately idolize them or condemn them. We immediately idolize them or condemn them. We pick these words, charismatic, 
fundamentalist, gospel-centered, high church. We have all these words, these churchy words, and we say, oh, because you're this type of church, then you're either awesome, you're solid, or you're, what's the opposite of solid? Liquid, you're gaseous, or whatever. Okay? So I'm going to stay away from that church. And if you do that, if you're doing that, then you're falling into the same mentality of the Corinthians. It's the same mentality of the Corinthians, where they say, I'm going to follow this person, but not this person, and and we're going to divide from other people who don't agree with us 100%. Of course, it's healthy to have some theological boundaries. We need to know what to believe. We need to have some standards of belief. We need to have shared vision and accountability. However, sometimes we as a church, we've drawn these unhealthy theological boundaries, boundaries that have created a culture of division and disunity in the church. That's number one, theological boundaries. Number two, I want to talk about Can number two, racial boundaries. A few centuries ago, many states had laws that prevented people from worshiping together, people of different skin colors to worship together. And even though those laws no longer exist, the legacy remains. About half a century ago, Martin Luther King Jr., he said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning, or in our context, 10 o'clock, pick your time. Has that changed? Has that changed? While there is some improvement, but in 2010, Michael Emerson from Rice University did a study uh, where he was trying to figure out how segregated are our churches today in America. And so what they did was they defined, okay, a multiracial church. They just said a multiracial church is a church in which one ethnic group did not make up more than 80% of the church. So, for example, if you have a church that's 90% white or 90% black or 90% Asian, that is not a multiracial church. And so he would say the threshold has to be 80% because if you have more than 80%, then what you have is basically a monocultural church and a few token people. And so he's saying in order to have a true multiracial church, okay, it has to be at least 80% or less of one ethnic group. And then what he did was he surveyed 11,000 random churches across the country. 11,000 random churches across the country. And they found that only 13.7% can be considered multiracial churches. Only 13.7% can be considered multiracial churches. And for you, maybe your special, you would say 80% is still too high. You might think it should be lower. So your percentage might be even lower than 13.7%. And on top of that, they did this other study. And they concluded that the average church in America is 10 times more segregated than the neighborhood it's in. The average church in America is about 10 times more segregated than the neighborhood it's located in. All that is to say that we as a church, we have drawn racial boundaries throughout history, and the effects of those boundaries are still with us today. Number three, let's talk about socioeconomic boundaries. In 2015, Robert Putnam, he's a Harvard scientist. He wrote this book called Our Kids, in which he explores why it is that some kids who grow up in poverty in America stay in poverty when they grow up. And he talks about different factors. And one of the things that he lists, which is pretty interesting, he says one of the factors is church attendance. Church attendance. He says that churches are healthy for kids who are in poverty because they provide a moral framework What's good? What's not good? They also provide kids with social capital, meaning they provide a social uh, support network. They provide mentorship. They provide potentially connections to job opportunities and so on. And so 
churches are good for kids in poverty. This is a secular book, right? Churches are good for people in poverty because they are strategically situated to help lift kids out of poverty by giving them connections. However, he says, Putnam found that teenage children of the least educated adults today spend about a third less time in religious services than children with parents with college degrees. And so what he's saying is, if you have kids who have less educated parents, for some reason or another, they are less likely to attend church today than they were than, than, than if you have parents who are educated. Similarly, this is another study in 2012 by research in the so- sociology of work. I did a lot of research, okay, as you can see. Researchers, they examined church attendance. My wife does research, by the way, and so I checked all this with her beforehand. Is this legit? Is this legit? She says it's legit. Researchers in 2012, they examined church attendance numbers in 1972 and church attendance numbers in 2010. 1972, 2010, 38-year time frame, and they found, not to anybody's surprise, that church numbers went down. All across the board, church attendance went down. However, what they found, what was interesting, was church attendance declined twice as fast among people who did not have college degrees than among people who did have college degrees. Church attendance declined twice as fast among people who did not have college degrees than among people who did have college degrees. In other words, across the board, people are leaving the church, but those who are less educated are leaving the church faster. People who are less educated are leaving the church faster. And nobody, nobody, and there's no conclusion, there's no explanation for why this is going on. Um, Most of the time, it's probably not that people are actively kicking people out of the church and they're saying, hey, show me your paychecks. Oh, nope, you're kicking out of the church. No one's doing that. I think what is happening, I'm just guessing, because this isn't research-based, but I'm guessing there is this gradual shift in mainstream Christianity in which churches have been moving to the middle-class suburbs, in which churches have been adopting middle-class discipleship methods, in which churches have been turning over their God-given responsibility to care for the poor to the welfare state so that people are more and more pursuing this consumeristic, comfortable, middle-class Christianity. And so as a result, people who don't fit in are gradually dropping out. People who don't fit are gradually dropping out. We as a church, not everybody, but in broad strokes, we as a church in America have largely chosen to exalt things like comfort, convenience, consumerism, And when we do that, people who don't fit into the mold, people who don't feel like the middle class, gradually stop going. Whether intentionally or unintentionally, we as a church, we've drawn socioeconomic boundaries. So that now, what is, now what goes on is people only attend church with other people of similar classes, similar lifestyles. And many in poverty, especially in urban areas, where it is the hardest to plant churches, where churches have the least funding, many in poverty have found themselves left out. So we're theologically divided, racially divided, socioeconomically divided. Last one, last one, politics. In 2018, this year, LifeWay Research conducted a survey in which they asked whether respondents agreed to the statement. The statement was, I prefer to attend a church where people share my political views. I prefer to attend a church where people share my political views. And the options were yes, no, or not sure. Those are the options. For churchgoers under 50, which are many of us, 57% said yes. 57% said they, chose, they didn't choose no or not sure. They chose yes. I prefer to go to a church 
where people share my political views. In greater society, people, you, can prob- you probably know this if you listen to any sort of radio, or read any sort of articles, or spend a minute on Facebook, people have been surrounding themselves with like-minded people when it comes to political things. They've been surrounding themselves in these echo chambers where they only listen to certain news outlets, they only talk to certain friends who reinforce what they already believe, and that is also going on inside the church. Here's what we do, and here's how we Christianize things, okay? We take one or two favorite political policies or hot topics that we really jive with, and what we, and what we do is we put Christian lingo under them so that we make this issue the defining issue of our day, and we say, that's who my political party is going to be, okay? And I'm going to say, this is the right political party. And if you disagree with me, if you're on the other side of the aisle, it doesn't matter if you prioritize this issue or this issue or this issue. If you're on the other side of the aisle, then I'm not going to associate with you. I'm going to unfriend you. I'm going to block you. I'm not going to talk to you. And that mentality, for better or for worse, is in the church. We have allowed our national politics to trump our kingdom politics. We have allowed our national politics to trump our kingdom politics. So here's what we've done, explicitly or, in, or implicitly. We, the modern American church, we have often chosen for our primary allegiance to be something other than the gospel. Maybe our primary allegiance is to specific pastors or schools of thought within Christianity. Maybe our primary allegiance is to this comfortable, colorblind, middle-class lifestyle within Christianity. Maybe our primary allegiance is to a certain political party within Christianity. Whatever the case, we have said, I value this thing. I value this thing. And I value this more than I value the gospel and the unity that the gospel brings. And I'll let this thing determine who I go to church with. I'll let this thing determine who I get along with. I'll let this thing determine who I develop relationships with, who I eat with. Maybe I'm preaching to the choir here because many of you uh, attend our church, and thankfully our church is diverse in a lot of ways. But I just want to you know, push it a little bit because it, I just want to say it's not enough just to sit in pews with people once a week on Sunday morning. It's not enough. I want, you to, ask, I want to ask, are you actively pursuing relationships with people in our church who are different from you? Are you actively pursuing relationships with people in our church who are different from you? Or are you just hanging out with people who are similar and then coming once a week and saying, oh, I go to a pretty diverse church, and that's it? Our calling is to be united in the same mind, in the same judgment, and you, frankly, you can't do that if all you do is just sit in a pew once a week with people who are right next to you, but you don't actually know them. What it takes is eating meals with people. What it takes is having people over at your place and vice versa. What it takes is getting to know what people's hobbies are and participating with them in those hobbies. And if you do that, this is what's going to happen. You're going to get to know some people who are very different from you, and you're going to have a conversation, and you're going to realize, oh, wow, you believe that? You believe that? I always thought that Christians believe this, but you believe that, or you, you say this. And when that happens, okay, it's going to happen. If you, the more you do it, the more it's going to happen. Two options are going to come to mind. You're either going to pursue division or you're going to pursue unity. You're either going to pursue division, meaning, you, okay, this guy, it's, I mean, I'm not going to fellowship with this guy anymore. This guy's off the kazoo. This guy's whack. I'm going to do my own thing. 
Or you're going to say, you know what, it's interesting that you believe that. Can you explain to me why you believe that? Can you explain to me your stance? Can you help me understand your background, your experience, and how those things formed who you are today? And when that happens, unity happens. Unity happens. And when that happens, you have chosen to allow the gospel be your primary allegiance. You have chosen to make the gospel to be stronger than those things that divide you. So we have these divisions, we have these boundaries. But these divisions, these boundaries, they're only surface-level issues. Paul gets to the heart of the issue. I'm going to keep reading uh, from verse 13. Verse 13, Paul says, Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? He's speaking in third person. Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius, so that no one may say that you are baptized in my name. I did baptize also the household of Stephanas. Beyond that, I do not know whether I baptized anyone else. So Paul, he's beginning the section by rhetorically asking the question, is Christ divided? And the answer is no, Christ is not divided. But his point is, when leaders in the church, like himself, that's why he's talking third person, when leaders in the church are elevated to a Jesus-like status, so when people are looking at Paul as if Paul was crucified for us instead of Jesus, or looking to Paul as if we are baptized in the name of Paul instead of baptized in the name of Jesus, then what it looks like is Christ is divided because the church is divided. And when the church is divided, then Christ is divided. And that brings us to the motivation behind division. It's not just that people don't get along. At the core of division is idolatry. At the core of division is idolatry. And what I mean by that is it's viewing people like Paul as if they are saviors, as if Paul was crucified for us, as if, Paul, as if we were being baptized in the name of Paul. It's viewing people like Paul as savior instead of Jesus as savior. So whenever people, whenever Christians experience division or disunity, what they're doing is they are prioritizing somebody more than Jesus. That's idolatry. Or they're prioritizing something more than the gospel. That's idolatry. Maybe it's a specific pastor or church leader that somehow you've exalted to, to, to Jesus' level. Maybe a specific doctrinal issue that you've exalted to Jesus' level. Whatever it is, whoever it is, that's something that someone is claiming your primary allegiance. And it is getting in the way of the gospel. Even though that someone or something may be a good thing, maybe that's something it can be a good thing. Paul is a great person. But that thing is getting in the way of the gospel. And so, in order to, and so Paul understands that. And so in order to address this, what Paul is doing is he does two things. First is he makes an intentional effort not to baptize a lot of people. He doesn't want to baptize a lot of people because he doesn't want people to get, he doesn't want to get in the way of people knowing Jesus. He doesn't want people to think, oh, wow, Paul, you're this amazing church planner. You baptized me. You know, so I'm going to idolize you. He doesn't want that. So he encouraged other people to baptize people because Paul's goal is to get people not to follow him, Paul's goal is to get people to follow Jesus. So that's the first thing he does. He doesn't baptize a lot of people. And the second thing is in verse 17. Verse 17, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, and not with words of eloquent wisdom, that the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. So Paul, so Paul chooses not to baptize a lot of people, and he also chooses, this is pretty interesting, not to use words of eloquent wisdom. Not to use words of eloquent wisdom. In other words, he didn't want to come, he intentionally chose not to come across as smart or brilliant or like a good, a person who, who could talk well. 
because he didn't want people flocking to him and, and saying, Paul, you're such an awesome, brilliant teacher. You're amazing. Let's just follow you around. He didn't want that. He didn't want people thinking of him that way. He just wanted to present the simple gospel, which is that Jesus died for us. He wanted Jesus to be the focus. And he recognized if he chose to use words of eloquent wisdom, he could potentially get in the way. I once heard someone say, some preachers, um, after they finish preaching the sermon, people are thinking, wow, what a great preacher. But other preachers, after they're done preaching a sermon, people are thinking, wow, what a great God. Our goal as leaders at the village church is never to get people to think, oh, wow, what great preachers we have. Or, oh, wow, what great music we have. Or, wow, what great youth ministry or kids ministry we have. Or, wow, what a great church building we have. We have new lights in our church building. What great lights we have. Our goal is always to get you to think, what a great God we have. And our goal is to get out of the way. Because when people get in the way, Paul says that the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. The cross of Christ is emptied of its power. One of the main reasons why people do not come to Jesus is because people are in the way. One of the main reasons why people don't come to, to Jesus is because there are people who represent Jesus who are getting in the way. And instead of allowing people to see how great Jesus is, these people, they point the spotlight at themselves and they say, hey, look how great we are. And these people who are looking at the church, they look at these people and they go, you're broken, just like us. You're fake, just like us. You're messed up, just like us. Why would we want Jesus? And the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. The late Brendan Manning once said, the greatest single cause of atheism in the world today is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips and walk out the door and deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. Many people, they look at the church and they want nothing to do with it because there are so many Christians who are in the way, who say one thing and do another. When the church is divided, when it consists of people splitting up and flocking to their theological tribes, to their pastor celebrities, to their consumeristic comforts, then the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. But when the church is united, not, in, not under one particular human church leader or another, but under Jesus and alone, then what happens is the cross of Christ is put on display for all to see. And people will say, wow, there's this church right here, and all these people, they're as different as people can be. They're different, they're different classes, different ethnic groups. They look different. They talk different. They're all different, but they love each other, and they care for each other, and they fight for each other, and they demonstrate this unity that is out of this world. And the answer is, it's because it is out of this world. We're all sinners, but we're all saved by grace. That's what we have in common, and that commonality, that unity is stronger than all the things that divide us. And then these people, they'll say, I want to be a part of that too. So I want to urge you to pursue church unity. Maybe you're here and you're not a Christian. Maybe you don't identify as a Christian, but you're just checking this whole thing out. And my urge to you, my appeal to you, is that you consider this church. Consider joining the church. And consider embracing this church for yourself. This 
church consists of broken people, of messed up people, of ugly people, spiritual ugly people, not physically ugly people. But one thing you should know is that is not true of Jesus. Jesus isn't broken, messed up, or ugly. And what he has done is he's united the rest of us under this vision of you're all saved by grace and you can be a part of this united church. And if that's you, if you want Jesus, you're welcome. Dedicate yourself to him and your life will be changed. I'd love to connect with you afterward. Maybe some of you are Christians. However, this vision of reconciliation, this vision of unity is not something you experience. Maybe it's at an individual level. Maybe there is a specific person in your life who's also a Christian, and you look at that person, and they seem very different from you, and maybe you even had a disagreement with that person at one point in time, and so you've lost touch, and you don't really hang out with that person anymore. What you've done is you've allowed that disagreement to be more important than the gospel in your relationship. And if that's you, I encourage you to ask God to intervene. Ask God to intervene. Intervene. And ask God, this reconciliation that I've experienced with you, I want that to be true of this relationship with this person as well. So I encourage you to seek unity, not division. Pursue communication, pursue reconciliation, pursue unity. Maybe all of you, it's not necessarily one specific person, but it's just this general feeling of, I just don't feel connected. I just feel like I don't have close relationships. I just feel like this unity that, that I'm reading about I don't see that in my life. I just feel like I'm alone in the church. Maybe it's because you, have a, you don't have cross-cultural relationships. Maybe it's you don't have close friends. Maybe something happened to you and you've been afraid to open up with people. You've chosen to be more anonymous than the average person in our church. And so if that's you, I want to encourage you. Open yourself up. Open yourself up. It's a two-way relationship, and we have a lot of new folks in our church. And just in a church of our size, it's going to be really hard to get to know people, to, to, to experience this unity, this community, unless you open yourselves up. And so one practical way to do that is to join a community group. Get plugged into a community group. Get to know a few folks. Ask questions. Share. When people share prayer requests, don't share surface-level things. Share deep things. And then ask people to share deep things, too. And especially people who you might not hang out with on a regular basis. People who, you, just, you know, you look at them and they go, it's pretty cool that they're in our church, but I probably wouldn't be their friends. You know, there's a lot of folks like that. We all think those things sometimes. You know, especially open up to those people. And when that happens, here's what's going to happen. You're going to follow Jesus. You're going to open up with people who also follow Jesus. You're going to run this race together. And you're going to intentionally rub shoulders with people. And you're going to realize that your lives look different. You're going to realize your lives look different. And you're going to realize that there are things that you value that this person doesn't value. And you're going to realize there are things that this person value that you don't value. And what's going to happen is you're going to sharpen one another. You're going to shape one another. You're going to speak truth and life into one another. You're going to discover sins in your lives that you didn't know of before. And you're going to say, you know what? It's okay that this person is not exactly like me. It's okay that I'm not exactly like this person. Because my goal isn't to get this person to be like me. My goal is to get this person to be like Jesus. And now I want this person to flourish in, the, in their individually designed way, just as they want me to flourish in my individually designed way. 
And the more we walk with one another, the more we run with another, the more we rub shoulders with one another, that vision will happen. Maybe you hear all this and you're thinking, that sounds like an awesome vision. That's some, that sounds like something I want to pursue. But to be honest, right now, I don't know if I can do that. It sounds like too big of a commitment. It sounds like too big of a, uh, a challenge. It sounds like too high of a standard. And if you're there right now, that's how you honestly feel. I want to know that's okay. I want you to rest. Rest in Jesus. Because our goal is not to be amazing Our goal is to look at Jesus who is amazing. And and, and the key to unity, the key to unity is never to muster up as much strength as we can acquire on our own. The key to unity is to always remember the gospel. The gospel is that we have been saved from sin. We have been declared guiltless. We have been declared accepted into the fellowship of the family of God. And that only happened because Jesus pursued unity with you. Do you realize that at one point in time, there was this big boundary between God and humanity? This big boundary between God and humanity, and it was called sin. Sin separated us and divided us from God, and sin separated us and divided us from one another. In fact, sin is the very reason why human beings have this tendency to draw boundaries. Sin is the reason why we have things like patriarchy and tribalism and classism and racism. Sin is the cause of all of that. But Jesus chose to be a boundary crosser. Jesus chose to be a boundary crosser. And he first did that when he left his father in heaven to become a human being. He bridged the boundary between God and humanity by becoming both God and man, by becoming a human being, by taking on human flesh, by uniting himself permanently with human flesh, by becoming one flesh with us, and by living a human life. And while he was on earth, he made it a point to also cross cultural boundaries. He spent time with women, very taboo in the day. He spent time with the poor, very taboo in the day. He spent time with non-Jews, very taboo in the day. Jesus made it a point to cross cultural boundaries. And then at the end of his life, he chose to die for us. You see, the only way to address this fundamental issue of sin and idolatry, it wasn't just to be a good example. It was to deal with this curse of sin, this curse of setting boundaries by becoming an atoning sacrifice of the world of the world, and by bridging the boundary between us and God, by reconciling us to God. And so Jesus did that. And after he did that, what he did, after he reconciled us to, the, to God, he gave us the ministry of reconciliation. And he said, okay, now all of you who have been reconciled to God, you are going to be this new thing called the church. And this new thing called the church is going to be unlike everything else in this world, where everybody else in this world is trying to draw boundaries and criticize one another, one another, try to feel better than one another, try to feel superior than one another, what you're going to do is you're going to be united. You're not going to be divided. You're going to be united. Why? Because Christ is not divided. Christ is united. And so you're not going to be divided. You're going to be united. And what you're going to do is you're going to continue my work on earth. You're going to continue my work on earth and reconciling the whole world. And by reconciling the whole world, you will be putting the cross of Christ on display. You'll be putting the cross of Christ on display. God's work of reconciling the world did not stop when Jesus died on the cross. If that was all there was, the cross of Christ would be emptied of its power. 
It keeps going, and it keeps going in the church, the united church, which is the setting that God has chosen to continue his work of uniting the world to one another and to himself. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you that despite all of our sins, all of our boundary drawing, all of the times we've looked down on people, all the times we've criticized people, all the times we've, we've judged people and mischaracterized people and stereotyped people, despite all of that, you've loved us. And you've chosen to send Jesus down to save lives, to save broken, pitiful lives, to save people who were judging people left and right. And you've chosen not to judge the world, not to condemn the world, but to save the world. Thank you that you've united us to you so that we can be brought into the family of God. And not only that, but you've commissioned us to bring people together all around the world so that we can be a united church, a place where we can have cross-cultural relationships, a place where we can look at people across the political aisle, the racial aisle, socioeconomic aisle, and say, I love you. I love you, brother. I love you, sister. I want to be your friend. I want to support you. I want to help you. I want to encourage you. I want to fight for you. And I'm thankful that you're doing the same for me. So God, there are so many idols in our lives that prevent us from fulfilling that vision. Idols of comfort. Idols of security. Idols of status. But God, I pray that you would break all of those walls down that you would break all those walls down in our hearts, that you would paint us such a beautiful picture of what it means to be this united church. Thank you for Jesus, and pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.